This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the book of Esther, and today we're finishing chapter 5. Understanding God's providence can really change our perspective on life. Instead of dreading the future and worrying about decisions, we can rest in the knowledge that God's will is going to prevail. We still need to make good decisions and live according to biblical principles, but no matter what besets us, we can trust God is at work in all circumstances. Last week we learned how God tames temperaments and alleviates anxiety. We'll discover two more aspects of God behind the scenes in human determination as we listen to the second half of today's message from Pastor Pierre. Now let me share with you the third aspect of God's providential care according to the story here. He not only tames temperaments, alleviates anxiety, but number three, he dismisses doubt. Verses 5 through 8. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Now, a little strange here. At this point in the banquet, the narrative here suggests that the king had a little too much to drink at this point, which is no surprise here in the case of Ahasuerus. And Esther had already prepared this first banquet, and she probably, the reason for that, that she wanted to minimize the possibility that he would change his mind between the first request and the beginning of the party. So everything was ready. She said, all you need to do is come to the banquet that I have already prepared. Now, I don't think that she wanted to get him drunk. Okay, because we know what happens with Ahasuerus when he drinks too much. Bad things happen. Bad edicts are passed and people are deposed. And she knew about the destructive power of alcohol in her husband's life. Here's what happens. Did you ready for this? This is a very profound theological truth. Esther knew how to get to a man's heart through his stomach. All right? Not rocket science, ladies. This was a risky move for her. And it worked by God's providence. Now, during dinner... Ahasuerus repeated the half of the kingdom offered again, which we at this point say, this is the wine talking, Ahasuerus. But instead of directly asking, this is the interesting part here, instead of directly asking for the safety of her people, she could have said, here's what I want. Ahasuerus, now that I found favor in your eyes and this and that, here's what I want you to do. You remember that edict you signed? I want you to try to reverse it. Now, but instead of doing that, strangely, she asked for a second banquet the next day. Now, there are several reasons why we can speculate uh, the, the reason for that. But I think she was terrified to see Haman. And she choked. I think she was planning to say, this is what I want you to do. But then when she saw Haman, the only words that could come out of her mouth were, uh, uh, can we do this again tomorrow? 
Not, not uh, far-fetched to think that. Maybe she wanted more time to fast. But listen, have you ever experienced something like that? You have a speech prepared, and you think you're good to go, but when you get to the podium, you choke. Those of you who are terrified of speaking in public may have experienced something like that. Perhaps because of the emotional baggage of your talk. You, you have everything ready, but when you, you get to the, to the thing, you say, uh, uh, the words just don't come out. I think that's what Esther faced that day. But regardless, that may not be the reason. This is my own thought in this matter here. Regardless of the reason, we know that God caused this to happen. Because in God's schedule, the turning point of this story would happen in the second banquet. Stay tuned for that. But God had a specific schedule in mind which tells us no matter what we do, God is always going to accomplish His plans. We can never frustrate His plans. He had determined from eternity past, from the foundation of the world, that he, there would be two banquets instead of one. That's what we, we have here. In God's sovereign plan, He decided, I'm going to do this in this particular way. Of course, Esther, you prepare, you say whatever you want, but I'm going to accomplish this in this way. Some things needed to happen that same night, you see. This is what we're going to study next time. Some things needed to happen specifically that same night so that uh, the request that Esther had for the king would be a lot more meaningful in the second banquet. Which leads us to the fourth aspect of God's providential plan. And last one here for our lesson today. He tames temperaments, he alleviates anxiety, he dismisses doubts, but also he hardens hearts. God hardens hearts. And if this is a new idea for you, stay tuned. Stay awake. I need you to be awake now if you're tempted to fall asleep because this is very important. I mean, the whole, the whole lesson is important, but because this may be new to you. That you say, Pastor, God hardens heart. Why does he do that? Well, listen to this. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart, okay? But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons in every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh his wife and all his friends said to him, have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And he advised, please Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now, what's happening in the story here is that the author zooms in on Haman in the second half of this chapter here, specifically during an interaction with Mordecai. Another one of those interactions where Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman. Again, we talked about this last time. There is nothing wrong with honoring a dignitary in respecting a dignitary, calling him by sir or ma'am. Uh, but the point here is that Haman wanted Mordecai to worship him because as we will confirm here, as in fact I, uh, I hope that you've ever, already uh, seen this here, Haman is a self-worshipper. Okay? Now, 
The, the author here is zooming in on this scene, and Mordecai doubled down on his justified civil disobedience. This is justified civil disobedience. Now, again, you can call governors or presidents by their titles and show them respect, no problem. At the moment, then the man to be worshipped is where you draw the line. And you say, I am no longer, I'm, I'm not doing that because I'm commanded to worship my God alone. So Mordecai was justified in his civil disobedience, which caused the Agagite here, Haman, to seek healing for his wounded ego. This is a wounded ego. This is a man with a wounded ego. And he's seeking healing for that through a specific public display of arrogance. In direct contrast with Mordecai's public demonstration of grief. Remember that from last chapter? We have Mordecai the Jew publicly demonstrating grief and mourning because of the edict to annihilate the Jews. And we have here now Haman publicly demonstrating his arrogance and his bad ego trip. Oh, in direct contradiction here, there's a direct contrast here, contrast. So Haman is patting himself on the back, showing the fruit of a hardened heart by God. His heart is hardened by God as an act of judgment against him. Do we understand that? God hardened this man's heart as an act of judgment because there is no room in his heart for God. The only God, small g God, that Haman worships is self. Now, Pharaoh of the Exodus, another Pharaoh here, is the second one we're talking about today, experienced something similar. About him, God said, listen to this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. That's in Exodus 7 verse 3. So church, God hardens people's hearts. Now, he did the same thing with the kings of the cities conquered by Joshua. Listen to Joshua 11 verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you see the pattern here again, church? God hardens people's hearts sometimes as an act of judgment. And in the case of the antagonist here, Haman, God hardened an already evil heart because, again, there is no room in his heart for God. Only for, for his God of self. He worshipped at the altar of self. In his case, a bloodthirsty, vengeful idol. By the way, self also happens to be the most popular false god in our culture. Can I get an amen on that? People who claim non-religious status, I hope you realize this by now, are usually the most loyal devotees of self. When they say, oh, no, I don't have any religion, I, 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 when they fill out polls, they say non-religious. They're not non-religious. There's no such thing. They are very devoted followers of self. And we know that because they sacrifice principles. How many people do you know in the last 20 years that have sacrificed convictions in order to be accepted by an evil culture? I was talking to one about not too long ago. They sacrifice principles, they sacrifice purity, dignity, health, and even their families for their God. And like Haman, they will not think twice before killing others in order to appease their deity, which also goes by the name, me, myself, and I. The Bible calls this false god the flesh. Here's another problem for Haman. He had such a low self-esteem. This is a guy, this is a baby. 
trapped in, a, in, a, in the body of a man. He had such a low self-esteem. Maybe he had mommy issues. He had such a low self-esteem that the non-affirming attitude of another man ruined his day. Think about that. He let the non-affirmation of another man ruin his day. And he medicated his bruised ego by recruiting his family to his worship service, the worship of self. And, and his sons probably at this point said, oh, here we go again. Dad is dragging us to another one of his ego massages or one of his self-affirming sessions here. Why does he need to tell his sons how many sons he has? They already know that. No. I assure you one thing, church, no one enjoyed being around this guy. No one, this was such a, uh, he was such an unpleasant personality here. No one enjoyed being around him. And the reason I know that is because self-worshippers are very unpleasant people. And ironically, the most persistent and committed proselytizers, they will drag you to their own religion. They will convert you by the sword if they have to, or in our case, by legislation if they can't make you bow to their perceived identity. Either you recognize my perceived identity to make me feel better, or I will do everything I can to destroy your life. Church, that is a demonstration of the worship of self in our culture. If Haman had been a true follower of God, like Mordecai and Esther, who were far from being perfect, remember that Esther committed sexual immorality here, there were True followers of God, however, if Haman had been a true follower of God, he would have learned to seek affirmation from the right source. That's the key here, which had nothing to do with what others do or say about us or don't do or say about us. So my fellow believer in Christ, neither your self-perception nor public opinion defines you. Have you realized that by now? Now, what people have done to you, good or bad, doesn't define you either. What Jesus has done for you on your behalf is what defines you. And His assessment of your life is what matters. Therefore, church, whom should we turn to for affirmation? To the world? To society? To politicians? No. That's the shortest trip to heartbreak. Whose approval should we pursue? Why do you care so much if other people don't honor you the way you think you should be honored or don't affirm your self-perception? You shouldn't expect to be treated like royalty because according to the Bible, my friends, we are servants, first of all, of God and second of all, of each other. So really, what you should be expected to be treated like a servant because the Bible says we are to serve one another. Whoever wants to be first, he must be the very last. That's the economy of God's kingdom. So we shouldn't expect people to treat us like royalty. And here's where we get that from. God already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 If you are a believer in Christ, God has already blessed you. Not that He's going to bless you. He's going to continue to do that, of course. And when you get to glory, you will receive the fullness of God's promise to you. But He has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Furthermore, according to Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 8, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. You see, church, therefore, because of biblical truth here, fishing for the applause of people depletes your energy. No wonder you're exhausted. It depletes you of joy and energy. Such a pursuit also leads to bitterness because the idol of self demands perpetual worship. The false god of self demands to be worshipped continually. The proper way to deal with this false god is to ignore his or her demands. Simply, starve the thing to death. Starve your self-idolatry inclinations. Like Paul says in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because flesh and spirit are, are opposites in terms to the spiritual flesh. Now, there's nothing evil with your, your body, your skin, and all of that. You, you have a redeemed body which will, that will be glorified one day. But my fellow believer, based on the text here, God's Word, not society, or your deceitful heart is the final authority on your value. Okay? Your value is not determined by society, by our culture, or even by your own self-perception. Your value is determined by the Word of God. And I want you to tell you, and I want you to know this, you are worthy, not of worship, but of love because you bear the image of God who is love. John, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And you bear the image of God, therefore you are worthy of divine love. Divine judgment because of our sin, of course, but because you have been redeemed, He loves you. You have already received the fullness of that divine attribute. The good book says you're His child. John 1.11 You're beloved by Him, John 3.16 If you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you have been rescued. You have been bought with a price, restored, forgiven, and twice born. So what if people don't affirm you? Or your perceived coolness, sophistication, your perceived success, or your perceived smartness. Stop looking for something you already have. Quit trying to convince the world you are lovable. Listen, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. This is only true of people who are born-again believers in Christ. And He demonstrates this love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. I wish someone had told Haman, this poor fellow here, about this love. Perhaps God would have softened his heart toward repentance. But here's another problem that the Agagite had here, which hindered him from seeing the truth. Can you guess what it is? He married a godless woman. That was a big problem, just like he was ungodly. We can say the same thing about Zeresh. She married a godless man, and that was a big problem. Furthermore, he wasn't very selective with his friends. They simply tickled his ear with awful and godless advice, which he loved. The prospect of publicly executing Mordecai sounded like melody to him. Oh, he loved that advice, which is very characteristic for people who are evil, people who are godless. They will soak up every godless advice they receive. But this is the lesson for us, specifically for the unmarried. You ready for this? Let me, let me slow down here. Choose very carefully with whom you will tie the knot. All right? Choose very carefully. Don't rush into it. 
There is no reason to rush into it. Now, during the early courtship phase, or the dating game here in our culture, by the way, those two are different things, boyfriend and girlfriend display their best behavior because they're trying to sell you something. All right? But things change when you have to share a bank account and a bed. A white lie in dating will turn into a pattern of deception in marriage unless God intervenes. But a rebellious heart will harden, and before you know it, a spouse will pull a zeresh on you and advise something like this. Quote, quit going to church. Let's do something else on Sunday mornings, close quote. Or, <laughs> giving money to these guys in the church? We can do so much more with this, and you can fill in the blank. Oh, friends, I have heard variations of this so often in my years of ministry here. If you're looking for marriage, do yourself a favor and find a prospect who loves Jesus. Okay, can we all agree on that? Find a prospect who loves Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian woman, pay close attention now. Here's your checklist. If you're a Christian woman, look for a man who was born again, has a servant's heart and a job, and a Bible that has fallen apart. You understand that? A Bible that has fallen apart because that means he reads his Bible and he uses it. A Bible collecting dust is a major red flag. It means he hasn't opened it in months. So let me repeat this, ladies. You're looking for Mr. Right. Do yourself a favor. Find a man who was born again, has a servant's heart, a job, and a Bible that has fallen apart. Guys, I want you to pay close attention to me now. To avoid the problem of Haman here. Look for a lady who was born again, serves at the local church, uses her tongue to bless rather than to gossip, and owns a Bible whose pages have so many different color markings you'd think she has a kaleidoscope in her purse. <laughs> Let me repeat your checklist. A lady who loves Jesus, of course, that's the first thing. Born again, obviously. Serves at the local church, uses her tongue to bless rather than to gossip, and owns a Bible whose pages have so many color different markings there. That means she studies her Bible. Are you going to have a perfect marriage? Of course not. But you're going to have a marriage founded in the right foundation. The opposite of what we see here. So tragically, the advice of Haman's wife and friends was his demise. But we will talk about that next week. Today, I just want you to know that God tames temperaments, alleviates anxiety, dismisses doubt and hardens hearts to fulfill His good, perfect, sovereign, and an all-loving plan for your life. Now, remember I said this in the beginning. I don't know every detail. In fact, I don't know any of the details of God's plan for your life except one. If you're not a believer in Christ, number one item that you should take care of today is to come to faith in Christ. Make sure that you receive salvation in Christ alone, that you are born again. I'm not signing you up for the church. I'm not saying come and become a Baptist. I'm saying become born again. And you can only do that by a work of God. But if you tell God, listen, I am ready, Lord. Come into my heart. Make me a new person. And give me a new life. He will transform your life. This isn't gonna, it's not going to make your life any easier by uh, human standards. In fact, you may incur more difficulties because from now on, your family will probably criticize you or say, well, you're changing teams now? You're becoming one of those? But we know that that's God's plan for your life because there are so many invitations that Jesus makes publicly. And one of which is this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Friend, if you are exhausted because you've been worshiping self, time to destroy that graven image and worship the true God. And you can start that today by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Please make sure that that takes place today before the day is over. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for your goodness and the fact that you grow us and nourish our souls by the preaching of your word, Lord. What a blessing to study this book that doesn't even mention God's name, but mentions his providential work all over the place. There's no sentence in that book. There's no letter in the book that doesn't reveal God's providential care for his people. And the application for us is that he cares just the same for us, those of us who are born-again believers in Christ, Lord. And it is our great desire that people around us here, people in our family and friends, people who are connected to us somehow that are not yet believers in Christ will come to a saving knowledge of our Savior, Lord. And for that reason, I ask for an extra measure of your courage so that we can tell them about Jesus today. Lord, and I pray that my brothers and sisters here will go home today thinking about these truths here, meditating on what we've talked about so that you will be honored and glorified. And as a byproduct of that, we will grow and we will mature in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.